Amen. In Deuteronomy 19, there's basically three different sections. We'll be looking at the three cities of refuge. We'll take a little detour and actually look at the total of six cities of refuge. And then we'll look at the importance of private property boundaries. And then just finally, the laws concerning false witnesses and court. Who do you listen to? Who do you not listen to? And uh, Amanda, she usually asks me what we're going through before she prepares for worship so she could seek the Lord. What songs are there? So she's like, hey, what are we going through tonight? The Avenger of Blood, Revenge, Cities of Refuge. She's like, ah, I used those songs last week. Joking around, but... As we study God's Word, it's always amazing how God comes through each and every time. So let's read verses 1 through 3. It says, When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. So we see all over verse 1, who's the one doing all the hard work and the heavy lifting here? It's all God. God's the one that's gone. He's already cleared the area, but Israel needs to do their work and their part in this. It's a great picture of sanctification. There's no doubt that the Lord and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, but we need to have self-control, self-discipline, cutting off the sins and weights which so easily ensnare us. Even salvation, it is a gift that God has purposed, has purchased purposed and given there for us, but we need to accept that gift by faith. It's all God. God's the one that's going to cut them off. God's the one that's going to give the land to them, but they need to go in and dispossess their enemies. It's God's land. He's cutting off the sinful nations, and then God is going to give specific land to specific tribes. Then he tells us that to separate three cities. Later on, we'll look at the six cities. There's six in total. You can write down Numbers 35, verse 15. We see this theme a few times in the Pentateuch. First time we see that there's six cities of refuge. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 41 through 43, Moses mentioned the first three cities, which were on the east side of the Jordan. And now he's mentioning here the three cities on the west side of the Jordan. And he says to separate these cities in the midst of your land. God wanted these cities evenly spread out throughout the nation of Israel. So that if someone was in need, if someone's life was on the line, if somebody needed salvation and protection from making a mistake, there was an easy path for them to get to. And there was a city nearby that they could run and flee to. Here he also tells us that he wanted specific roads to be set up for the men or women to run there. He wanted it easy and simple for a man or a woman that's made an honest mistake to be able to run and be freed from the avenger. 
Adam Clark, he says, the Jews inform us that the roads to the cities of refuge were made very broad. They were made 32 cubits wide. 32 cubits is about 48 feet wide. That's a pretty wide road in order to get yourself there. He continues, he says, so that there should be no impediments in the way and they were to be constantly kept in good repair. So God made a way, if you made an honest mistake, you could run on a road that's been already made for you, that is clear and kept up, so you could run and get to that city of refuge. Why would you need to run to a city of refuge? Verse 4 through 7. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in the past, as when a man goes into the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him. Because the way is long and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in the past. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. We see in verse 4 that this is what's called manslaughter, an accident. And I don't know when was the last time you went into the woods to split wood or to cut down lumber, but perhaps you have an accident and you kill someone driving your car accidentally. Or you're going hunting with a friend, going shooting with a friend, and accidentally, God forbid, you shoot someone or kill someone that you love, or you kill an innocent person, someone you didn't know. As long as there was not previous hatred in your heart towards them, and as long as you weren't hiding in wait to murder them, you could run to one of these cities of refuge. Because at this time, there was no police force. The judicial system, there was not a judge and different attorneys and a system where you can serve someone or call the cops if somebody died or call the rescue. If someone in your family died by the hands of someone else, the nearest of kin to that family member was appointed to be his or her avenger of blood. In the Hebrew, it's the word goel. It's a kinsman. But instead of a kinsman redeemer, it's a kinsman avenger. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we see the foundation of all of this. And it's foundational even to have the death penalty within a nation. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. It's pretty simple and common sense. If you kill someone after they've murdered someone the first time, you're going to limit the amount of murderers you have in a society. It's one of the great issues within our United States of America is that guilty men and guilty women have found ways around the system. So you have people, they're going on trial, not for their first murder or second murder, but third, fourth, or fifth murder. You have people that they're up and they're in court once again, not for the first time that they've 
preyed on a child or on a woman, but the second or third or fourth time they've raped or been inappropriate with a child. It's the danger that we're facing as a society today. But God's plan was that the moment someone would shed the blood of an innocent man, woman, or child, that man or woman's blood was required of them. So if this was an honest mistake and an accident, the way you'd protect yourself would to be running to one of these cities of refuge, which God would place in specific locations throughout all Israel and placed with a 40-foot highway to get yourself as soon as possible. In verses 8 and 9 in Deuteronomy 19, it says, Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today to love the Lord your God, And to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourselves besides these three. What's three plus three? Six. Mathematicians, all of you. Let's turn to Joshua 20. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 20. And here in Joshua, as they're taking over this land, they're going, they're keeping the the commandments. God's enlarging the territory. They're possessing the territory. They're going to battle. Joshua chapter 20 gives us these exact six cities. Joshua chapter 20, verse 7 through 9. It tells us, So they appointed, number one, Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali. Number two, Shechem, in the mountains of Ephraim. Number three, Kerjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And then on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned, number four, Bezer, in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben. Number five, Ramoth, in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and number six, Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. Verse nine, these were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation." It's interesting because in the Middle East, there are certain areas where people still live by these laws. Certain Bedouins, certain laws within Arab nations. It's literally an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You steal, cut off the hand. You kill my family member, I kill you. That's the way in the Middle East today. And as we read through these six cities, you probably didn't think that much of them. I certainly didn't the first time I read it or the 20th time I read through it. We've gone through this sections before, but this is the first time ever I saw the wisdom in doing a word study on the six names of these cities. And it's incredible how these six cities, their names line up with Jesus, who is our refuge. In Hebrews chapter 6, let's turn there. It lays down the foundation as we go through these six cities. Hebrews chapter 6. We can be reminded all of the Old Testament is a shadow 
and a type of Jesus Christ. Even Moses and Joshua. Moses couldn't get into the promised land because he was the law. But Joshua, Jeshua, literally Jesus' name, he was able to get the nation of Israel into the promised land. So we, being God's chosen people, it's not the law that gets us there, but it's through the person of Jesus Christ. But Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, it says the following. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which... It is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation. And now here's the key. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. We as believers, we as Christians, we have fled. We've run for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And that refuge, that hope set before us is Jesus Christ. So now these six cities, the first one is Kadesh, the city Kadesh, the name Kadesh, it means holy. It means holy. And if there's anyone that's holy, it is Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our refuge. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, it tells us that the four living creatures who have six wings and were full of eyes around and within... They do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Jesus, our city of refuge, he is holy. The second city is the city of Shechem, which means shoulder. And even now during this Christmas season, oftentimes Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 pops up. And it tells us, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a child is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The third city is the city of Hebron, which, is all, which means fellowship, fellowship. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 it tells us God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That city of refuge for us, we enter into fellowship with Jesus. The fourth city is the city Bezer, which means fortress, a literal fortress. In Psalm 18 verse 2, the psalmist, he says it oftentimes throughout the book of Psalms. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Is the Lord God truly our fortress? Is he the one that we run to? I was thinking about this a little bit today. Amanda and I were going for a walk and we were talking about what are our New Year's resolutions. Maybe that's been a topic of conversations for you. What are the things we're going to say we want to do this year that we're going to fail by the second month to do, right? If you have any New Year's resolution, just start doing it now. There's no special magic thing with January 1st. Nothing like that. Y2K was fake. That's fake too, right? So 
well, we were talking about what's our New Year's resolution, and at one moment I even thought about the, the love of traveling or traveling more, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I've been blessed in life to be able to travel to different places. I had an incre- incredible grandmother who was just a seamstress in New York City. She saved all her money and would take us on trips. So we've gone to Hawaii. We've gone to St. Thomas. Last year was blessed. Got to go to Kenya. Took Levi on a safari. And you go on these trips to these beautiful places and you get home. And guess what? You're just as empty as before you left. You think, once I go, man, once I go to Hawaii, man, once I go to Fiji, once I go to this place, then I'll be fulfilled. And what you realize is you could travel the whole world, and yet you are so empty. Because our fortress, it's not Hawaii, it's not St. Thomas, it's not your favorite place. Our fortress needs to be Jesus Christ. And when we truly spend time with him, that's where we find fulfillment. That's where we find peace. That's where you find strength and the relaxation we were looking for in that vacation to begin with. I mean, how many of us do we get back from a vacation and we're completely exhausted and more tired than when we left? And we literally say, I need a vacation from that vacation. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Trip to Disney, relaxing? Absolutely not. Completely exhausting. But if Jesus is our fortress and we're running to him, We will find strength and salvation in him. The fifth city is Ramoth, which means heights or high. And in Acts chapter 5 verse 31 it says, Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior and to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Another scripture on this, one of my favorites, Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 After the lows of the low that Jesus went to to humble himself for us, Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 tells us, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Jesus, our refuge, our strong tower, he's been lifted up. The last city is the city Golan. And Golan, it means joy. Joy in First Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Speaking of us and our relationship with Jesus, it says, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. When we've really run to that city of refuge, we're going to be filled with joy even though we haven't seen him face to face. So may we as believers, may we truly run and flee for refuge in Jesus Christ. David Guzik, he points out similarities and differences between the cities of refuge and Jesus Christ, our refuge. The first one, he says, both Jesus and the cities of refuge are within easy reach for the person in need. The place of refuge is of no use if it can't be reached. The ancient cities of refuge, 40-foot highway to get there. Jesus, our refuge, all we have to do is humble ourselves and say, Lord, help me. That's all we have to do, and we're there. Lord, forgive me of my sins, and we're there. Second one is both Jesus and the cities of refuge are open to all. It was not just for the Israelites. It was for anyone within that nation of Israel. No one who comes to the place of refuge is turned away in time of need. 
The third way is both Jesus and the cities of refuge were places to live. And in time of need, one never came to a city of refuge just to look around or just to visit. You would go there and you had to live there because if you ever walked out of the city of refuge, if you're a kid here or you can remember being a kid or you're a kid at heart and you played tag, you got to stay on base. If not, they're going to get you. And the city of refuge is literally a base. The moment you leave the city of refuge, if the Avengers waiting there for you, you're dead. You're gone. You would live in this city for the rest of your life. Next way is both Jesus and the cities of refuge are the only alternative for the one in need. Without this refuge, destruction is certain. Apart from Jesus, there's no heaven. And if you're not in heaven, then it's hell for all of eternity. Next way, both Jesus and the cities of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries. If we go outside the provided refuge, it means death. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge provided full freedom with the death of the high priest. We didn't go into those scriptures, but you had to live in the city of refuge, it says, until the death of the high priest. And then your freedom was locked and set, and now you can go and move and be back to a normal lifestyle. One final point here, David Guzik says, however, there's a crucial distinction between Jesus and the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge only helped those who were innocent. And yet with Jesus, even the guilty can come to him and find refuge and life. Well, what a joy for us. Not one of us is truly innocent. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned. And now we can run to Jesus, live in Jesus, and stay in Jesus. And the avenger, this is not Captain America or Thor, right? The avenger of blood is Satan trying to kill us and destroy us, and yet we can live in Jesus and be free. The question for us tonight, the question for all of humanity is, have we truly come to Jesus? Have we left our old lives behind and run to Jesus for our refuge? A book we don't often remember is the book of Nahum. And in Nahum chapter 1 verse 7 it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. He knows. You may have be fooling me. You may be fooling your family. You may be fooling those around you. But the only one who matters is him. And he knows if you've actually put your refuge in him. In Isaiah 25 verse 4 it says, You've been strength to the poor. A strength to the needy in distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. The Lord, he is a refuge from the storm, and may each and every one of us be able to say and sing like the psalmist in Psalm 91 verse 2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress my God, in Him will I trust. You see, the Israelite that shed the innocent blood of someone else by accident, 
When they got to the city of refuge, it's not like they got a deed. It's, they didn't feel any different. They had to live there by faith. There is not certain feelings, oof, I just got into the city of refuge, so now I'm free. No, you'd have to live there and stay living there in faith. And it's the same for us. We need to stay in Jesus and come to him by faith. Back to Deuteronomy 19, verse 10 through 13. What's the reason behind all these laws? Verse 10. Lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, rises against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. What's God's reason for all of these laws? That it would go well for the nation of Israel. And any nation that allows innocent blood to not be punished, it's not going to go well for them. It's going to go terrible for that nation. Within our own nation, almost every, every abortion, how much innocent blood has been shed within our nation? It's not going to go well for us. We are image bearers. And the Lord our God does not want innocent blood being shed for any reason. And if we allow innocent blood to be shed on our watch, we're, we're guilty of it. The, the Lord knows us, and he knows that people, especially guilty people, learn how to take advantage of systems. That's why he says here, if someone already hated their neighbor, and you already knew of this, and now you find so-and-so dies, and fulano ran to the city of refuge, you can say, Harvey hated that guy his whole life. There's no way that was an accident. He just always talked about how he wanted to kill him and wring his neck. So you would send officials over there. They'd grab that man and bring him back. So the true murderer, that person that hated the person that they killed by accident, you were to go grab that person, bring them back, and deliver them to the Goel, the avenger of that family. So murderers, they weren't allowed the guilty, they weren't allowed in the city of refuge, only the innocent. But in Jesus, all of us who are guilty, which is every single one of us, were allowed to come into him and be safe. Verse 14, for those of you who enjoy having private property, here's a great verse for you. Verse 14, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set. In your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now Jesus here, he's not God. He's not talking about tourist traps and having landmarks and cities saying, hey, you got to keep every tourist trap there, every photo opportunity to keep there in the nation of Israel. What God is speaking of here is not messing with one another's property lines. 
You see, in ancient times, you couldn't go to the city or go to the county city hall and submit the survey that you ran for your property, which would then be matched to a satellite picture from up above. Instead, what you would do is you'd get large boulders or lots of smaller rocks and you'd stack them up into piles and you would use this as your property line. You would say, hey, that big rock to that big rock to this big rock to this big rock, that's my property. That's my land. So there was, as there's always a temptation within us to make more land for ourselves and less land for our neighbors. So people would roll those rocks over in the middle of the night. And now suddenly my land is growing. I don't know how it's happening, but my land's getting bigger and bigger. They were stealing property and land from their neighbors, from their family, and from one another. This is found all throughout the Old Testament, and there's major curses, and it's a big no-no scripturally. In Deuteronomy 27, verse 17, it says, Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. In Proverbs 22, 28, it says, Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. In Proverbs 23, verse 10, it says something very similar. Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless. And finally, in Hosea, chapter 5, verse 10, it says, The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark, and I will pour my wrath out on them like water. So we see it's almost like bookends. God starts off saying, Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's landmark, and then it ends in Hosea that he will pour out his wrath on them like water. So is this just speaking about property lines? It's a big one. You shouldn't be trying to steal from your neighbor's property line or throwing your clippings over the fence for them to deal with. Don't be doing that. But also biblically, we see here the ancient landmark. And here now it's speaking about something more spiritual, even truth itself. At times we just want to see change and see something different. And many of us were, were pulled into one direction or the other. There's some of us that we just always want something different. We just need to go someplace different for vacation this year. I just want something different for lunch today. I just want something different for dinner tomorrow. And then the other half of us, what do we want? The same exact thing every time. I'm not going to order anything different. I order the same thing every time I go to the restaurant. But there's a warning to those who just like change for the sake of change. Let's turn to Proverbs 24. And in Proverbs 24, we will see this great warning. It's so interesting how many politicians, their only slogan is change is coming. What's the change going to be? Nobody knows, but change is coming. Is it good change or bad change? Nobody knows. Change is coming. They're going to take your dollars and give you change. Proverbs 24, verse 21. It took a little bit, but I got there. Proverbs 24, verse 21. It says, My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those given to change. For their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows 
the ruin those two can bring. There are some that they just want change every day, every week, every month. It's just, I need something different. I want something different. There's a warning for us to not change just for the sake of change. There's a danger there. There's a great danger there for us. But now as in the New Testament, there's also the warning of not becoming an old wineskin that we're so set in our ways that when the Holy Spirit wants to do something new, you crack and break. And this is where we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be able to recognize, Lord, is this something I'm supposed to settle in and not change? Or Lord, is this something you want me to be completely flexible and move? We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can be men and women who are able to judge the seasons and the times. Amongst David's army, it mentions the 12 tribes of Israel and what was special about each tribe. And it says of the tribe of Issachar, these men were so special because in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, it says the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And I love it. It's not just that they had understanding of the times, but then they knew how to apply those times and the change in it. And we need both. There's a great danger today within Christianity, especially within the West, of we just want to follow accounts that just give us news, give us prophecy news. Every five seconds, every 10 seconds, it tells us what's going on in Israel, what's going on in Russia. And it can tell us, it can bombard us with news and understanding the times. But if there's no different application, guess what? You're wasting your time. It's not just understanding the times and knowing what's going on in the whole entire world. It's knowing what we can do or should do with it. And as believers, that's where we need to be today. Lord, help us, fill us with the Holy Spirit to understand the times, understand the season I'm in, understand the season my family's in or my sphere of influence is, is in, and Lord, show me what I should do with this understanding. I'm reading this book on leadership from Warren Wiersbe, and he speaks on how believers need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can know when we ought to be like a boulder and when we ought to be like water. When it comes to methods, we should be like water, flexible, go with the flow, and easily able to change. But when it comes to principles, we ought to be like a boulder, immovable and unshakable, standing in the principles and the truths and in the ancient landmarks of Scripture. Do we have the balance to be able to do both? That's exactly what we need. You look at Peter. He's called that rock, right? Simon Peter. He's called that rock, that stone. And he was known for being a rock. I don't want to change. I don't want to change. I don't want to do anything different. And yet God uses him to reach all of the Gentiles. But God, I've never eaten bacon before. He has to tell him three times, rise, Pete, kill and eat. Lord, I've never eaten a lobster before. Rise, Pete, kill and eat. It's time. It's time to reach these new people. So for us as believers, may we have understanding of the times and may we know what we ought to do. Principles, especially biblical principles, we must be that bolder. But when it comes to methods, may we be like water, flexible, going with the flow. Verse 15, 
And we come to the third section back in Deuteronomy 19. It says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and those who remain shall hear and fear. Hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Anyone here love liars? It's something innate within us that we don't like liars. People that lie to us all the time, it just gives each and every one of us the heebie-jeebies, right? It's similar with God. God, he does not, is not down with liars. He forgives them. He saves them. But if we're walking in his truths, we shouldn't be lying. Even in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And now in order to protect Israel from false witnesses, nothing could be taken serious for punishment unless there were two or three witnesses in agreement of what happened. And now if there's one witness testifying against another witness or testifying against that one person of wrongdoing, then you bring both men before the Lord and before the priests. Later on, during the, the era of kings in Israel, you see the two women with the one baby that died and the one baby that stood alive. They bring this situation, a false witness, before Solomon. And God gave Solomon that wisdom. We know of Jesus, he dealt with many false witnesses during his lawless and unfair trials. In Matthew 26, verse 59 and 60, Again, how can you have a good witness when a man is a perfect man? But in Matthew 26, 59, it says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came, over, came forward, they found none, but at last two false witnesses came forward. So scripturally... According to the law that these Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to uphold, every one of the false witnesses that were all in a coup against Jesus, each and every one of them should have been crucified as Jesus was crucified. And all of this is to be done so that when people hear, they would fear and then this would not happen again. And it's something within our modern age that we think when evil people get punished and when evil people have sown and they reap what they've sown, there's a lie today that it doesn't set the rest of society in order. That when society sees someone getting what they deserve, the rest of society says, hey, I don't want to do that. 
And yet many of our cities are in complete rubble because they keep lowering down what is punishable. You look at San Francisco, many cities in California. Why do people go into Walgreens with garbage bags and steal under $600? Because they know as long as you don't steal over $600, they can't do anything to you. Slap on the wrist, you get out of there. Scripturally, we are to have laws and uphold laws and to have justice to protect society. Now, there is a difference for believers and for society. We as believers, we're not governed by the law, but we're governed by the higher law, which is the law of love, which is far scarier and harder to uphold. But for a society, a society needs law because men and women are not inherently good. They are inherently evil. And that's why we need laws so that those who remain shall hear and fear and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. I think of Esther and Mordecai and Haman. And Haman brought all these lies up against Mordecai and what ended up happening, what did the Lord do? Haman ended up getting hung on the same gallows he built for Mordecai. Esther is a great book, phenomenal book. You should read it. Finally, verse 21. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. Now some read this scripture and they think, man, what is God's problem He really likes revenge. God, he's just one of those middle-aged men always watching revenge movies on TV. He's just one of those guys. I think each and every one of us, we know in our heart of hearts, when someone does something against us, do we meet them with equal force? Let's be honest here. Do we meet them with equal force? No, we have to go a little bit overboard. Or if we're honest, a lot a bit overboard. Someone says some one mean thing about us, what do we do? We just come with an avalanche of mean things and comebacks against them. So here what God creates is an even. Hey, this happens to you. This is what should happen to that person. They take your eye. You can't take their eyes and their legs and their arms and their back. No, it's only an eye for an eye. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. As I mentioned earlier, there's one set of laws for a society. And then there's one set of laws for Christians. Hopefully each and every one of us sitting in these blue chairs. And it's a far more difficult set of laws. Matthew chapter 5. Here within the B attitudes, the attitudes we should have as men and women that are a part of the kingdom of heaven. And this is especially true when it is amongst believers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic... Let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. 
Again, this is such a difficult scripture. I'm not going to stand here and be a hypocrite. This is such a difficult scripture for me to understand and apprehend and to live by. Because my nature likes eye for two eyes. That's what my nature likes. The eye for the two eyes, the two legs, break them all out. That's what my nature wants. But here what Jesus gives us is a new nature. And listening to Voice of the Martyrs. When I was in California, there was this gentleman that was working for Voice of the Martyrs. He would go around to different countries interviewing people that had been bruised and beaten for the faith. He had gone to a bunch of different countries. And then his last stop on one of these trips was going to Sudan. And in Sudan for a week, he interviewed different people. And he's on his way to the airport. He gets to the airport. He calls his wife. Hey, honey, mission accomplished. I'm on my way home. Right as he's about to board the plane, he feels someone tapping his shoulder. It's a bunch of Sudanese police. And they say, hey, come here with us. So he says, oh, just, you know. Maybe I had too much liquid in my bag. Maybe something went wrong. My laptop was in the wrong section. They call him to the side. They start interviewing him. And they take him to a private room in the airport. They start interviewing him there. He looks at his watch and his plane took off. And he says, oof, this isn't good. A little bit later on, they take him from the airport, put a bag on his head, and now they take him to the police station. And now he realizes something's wrong here. They take him and they put him into prison for trying to overthrow the government. He was there for four days in Sudan. And now they put him into prison for trying to overthrow the government. And of all the prison inmates they could have given him, they put in a two-man cell, they put seven men in the prison cell. There's him, and then there's six men who were members of ISIS. And this is what he had to live with for the next year or so. Being beaten, being bruised. And one of the common denominators you hear from these men and women who are truly martyrs is that the Lord gives them a supernatural filling of the Holy Spirit that as they're being beaten and bruised, they're able to turn to their torturers and turn the other cheek. They're able to turn to their torturers and say, how can I pray for you? And each of them say the same thing. It just disarms them. They just start weeping. They don't know how to handle it. Another gentleman in Iraq that was same thing. Got in prison in Iraq and he was getting beaten by the same torturer over and over again. And then one day he comes into the cell. He knows he's going to get tortured. The other gentleman walks in and he says, hey, I figure since we're going to be seeing each other pretty consistently, let's be friends. What's your name? And he says his torture just began to weep. Again, there's a supernatural love that the Lord gives us when we are in those moments to be able to turn the other cheek. There's a supernatural filling of the Holy Spirit. We just have to be open to it. If we're always resistant to it, if we're just holding on to our Americanness, if we're just holding on to how we've grown up, if we're just holding on to our hatred towards bullies, I hate bullies as well, but we have to be open to the filling of the Holy Spirit for each season and each time, saying, all right, Lord, how do you want to use me in this situation? So Deuteronomy 19, most important thing, number one, may we run to our refuge, our fortress, our joy, the one who's been lifted up, the name that's been lifted up above every other name, knowing that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Remember, don't move that ancient boundary Ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, am I to be a boulder right now or am I to be like water? 
Think of that interview with Bruce Lee about water. That's a separate teaching, right? But should we be that boulder or should we be that water? And then finally, Lord, am I to enact, am I to enact justice right here to protect others and warn others from doing this? If you have kids, it's usually really important to enact justice so the rest of your kids say, oof, I don't want to do that. I just saw what happened to my little brother, little sister, or big brother, sister. I don't want to do that. Or is God calling you to turn the other cheek? So, hey, let's all pray. Worship team, you guys can come up, and we'll close in worship. Lord, we, we thank you for all of your word, Lord, all of your counsel from Genesis to Revelation. And, Lord, I pray that you would just give us a new supernatural hunger for your word, Lord. Especially for anyone here, Lord, perhaps the enemies condemning them because they did not read as much as they wanted to read this year, Lord. I pray that you just give us a supernatural hunger for your word, Lord. And help us, Lord. Fill us with the Spirit so that we'd have self-discipline as well, Lord. Give us a greater hunger for your word from Genesis to Revelation, God. And Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen us, even today, God, for those of us who have been wrongly harmed, God. Lord, strengthen us. Fill us with your spirit. What should we do? How do we treat this situation, Lord? Lord, please fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we would know the seasons and the times and now how to apply ourselves to the situation, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are our fortress, our strong tower, our deliverer, the one in whom we can trust, God. Thank you that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us, Lord. We thank you that a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. So, Lord, just give us an extra measure of humility, Lord. Give us an extra measure of brokenness, Lord, with our own sins. So, Lord, we love you. Jesus, we thank you for your death, your sacrifice on the cross. And, Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.